broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Orlando, Florida, it's time for Regions Business Radio Orlando. Regions Business Radio Orlando is presented by Regions Bank. Brave the beginning. Member FDIC. Welcome to Regions Business Radio Orlando, presented by Regions Bank, member FDIC, an equal housing lender. I'm your host, Scott Wall, and I'm a commercial banking manager with Regions Bank in Orlando, Florida, and we are broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio inside the downtown Marriott here in Orlando, Florida. And I'm joined today by my guest, John Rivers, who is the founder of Four Rivers Smokehouse and the 4R Foundation and also the Four Roots Farm. Hey, John, welcome. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be here. I I would think, John, most people in Central Florida have had your barbecue before, and it's pretty fantastic. But maybe take a minute, if you would, and tell those of us that maybe don't know the origin of how you went from running a large pharmaceutical business 15, 20 years ago to ending up serving brisket on Fairbanks Avenue. Oh, sure, Scott. And I I tell you, I'm so appreciative for Orlando and Central Florida. They have embrace us since the day we opened back in 2009. A bunch of uh, folks who really didn't know the restaurant industry and just were following a passion. And from day one, we had we were blessed with a line that went out the door. And you know, to this very day, we're getting ready to celebrate our 13th anniversary. And still, people are just so kind and uh, supportive. And thankfully, they like barbecue <laughs> and they eat a lot of it. The origins of the business uh, consequently go back to my garage back in 2005 um, when I was in healthcare. And there was a little girl who had cancer in our community and her family wouldn't take money from Monica and I, my wife, but I got them to agree to let me do a, a barbecue fundraiser for them at their church uh, in Winter Park. And that was the uh, the, the impetus and the, the very, the genesis of the, ver- of the business, what became the business, but the business didn't come about until four or five years later. What it was, was the very first time that I learned a, a very valuable lesson. I took the passion that I had for cooking, the gift that God gave me for that, and I used it to help other people. And that's different from what you do from work and from an occupation. And when I did that, I remember at the end of the event, I was telling Monica how much I was filled inside. You know, I was dead beat tired. I won't go into that whole story, but I said, I want to do this. And she asked me, do what? And I said, I want to continue to to help other people, not by writing checks, okay? Because that's, you know, God bless you if that's what you do. But when you make that personal touch and you put your heart and your sweat into something and you lean into somebody, it's, it's there's more of a personal relationship and a connection that's established. And I did it for the very first time then and fell in love with it. During that time, it grew you know, year over year over year. And Monica said, you're just growing this so that you can get bigger smokers you know, year over year. But I was doing it all in the garage. The other thing was I started recognizing that when I went to work Monday through Friday, I was this John, okay, tie, suit, running a you know multi-billion dollar business. But on the weekends... On Saturday and Sunday, when I was doing that mission work, man, I was a whole different John, and, and I was alive. And the, the, the disparity between those two became so great that it became evident to me that, you know, one, I feel like I'm cheating and lying to my boss and to the company that I work for, but also to myself. And uh, it came a day when that disparity became so great. And I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm, 
one of my big tenets is consistency and integrity. You know, the person that you are at work should be the exact same person you are at home at your family, should be the exact same person you are on Sunday mornings. And when you don't have that that consistency, it's really a tough life to manage. And I believe that. And I also believe, too, that if you're not doing something that you're passionate about, bring passion into what you're doing. And always give it that first effort. And at the end of the day, if you still, if it's still not lighting your fire and getting your heart going, life is too short. Go do something different. Love it. And I have a question about that particular, that passion, that kind of purpose you speak of, John. When you were healthcare, is that right? It was healthcare? Sure. When you were in that industry, call it the years leading up to that first fundraiser, did you feel any pangs of, gosh, what's that next What's that next step? Or is there a next chapter maybe I've got here? Or did you stumble upon it once the once you started cooking that brisket? No, you know, I, I believe, you know, you ask little kids, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I love it because they're uninhibited. I want to be an NFL football player. You know, I want to be Miss America. I want to be a doctor. You know, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a camp counselor. And what's beautiful about that? is that at that age, nobody has told them, you're not smart enough, you're not fast enough, you're not pretty enough. You know, and it's, it's the stories that we believe that dictate the life that we live. And when you start to listen to that and let it absorb into you, that, that, that starts to tell you the steps that you're going down. Now, when I was a little boy, first, I don't know why, <laughs> I love cooking. You know, I just... Um, you know, just even from, you know, seven, eight years old, I would cook Christmas breakfast dinner or breakfast, you know, it ended up being dinner, but it was supposed to be breakfast for everybody. Then my first job was a dishwasher the day I turned 15 and, you know, worked my way through high school and paid my way through college by working in restaurants the whole time. And it was just always around food and loved the combinations and had a knack for it. But at the same time, the other side of my brain, I, I love business. I love creating. I'm, I'm, I'm analytical. I love to you know, go after things and I love building things. And um, so, you know, God put me on a path and I'm, I'm thankful looking back. You know, it's that old saying by um, Kierkegaard, 18th century theologian. He said, you live your life moving forward, but you understand your life looking back. You know, and everything happens for a reason. And even when you're in those tough times, you know, you have to look at it as it's not the toughness of the situation, but what it's teaching you that's preparing you for that next step. And I look back on those 20 years of healthcare, and was I unhappy? No, not at all. And quite honestly, it was a blessing because the lessons I learned about growing businesses, I was in business development. I did sales and marketing and M&A, and then before I became the president, you know, and, and all of those skills and attributes have allowed me to grow, I, I say our business, but really our ministry and our impact. And the, and the more, the bigger the business is and the more successful we are, the more people we're able to help with it. And that's where that third leg comes into play. If you do what you love to do, okay, that passion that's in your heart, you do it to help other people for the right reason, and then if you're so blessed, you can actually do it as your occupation. That's when happiness comes into play. Nothing to do with income, nothing to do with title, anything. You know, when you're truly doing what you love for the right reasons and supporting your family and building the community, man, there's not an, you don't count hours. You don't count minutes. 
So speaking of which, that first, you make that decision, you and Monica make the call, we're, we're going to take this ministry on the road, we're going we're gonna to make a business here. And, I, and I'm simplifying it, and I know there were a lot of people probably on that first year or two of team, that, and we can talk about people later, that's a very important part of this, but maybe speak a little bit, John, about that first year or two. I mean, and, and think perhaps in our audience, we've got some business owners or entrepreneurs, but you know, it's, it's one thing to say you want to start a business, doing it and succeeding quite different. So maybe speak about the challenges and the observations if you could. You know, Scott, it's a misnomer, and it's very rare of the the Silicon Valley startups. There's very few instances where you truly step into starting something that's new, and it's easy, okay, or that it comes easy. And quite honestly, if it does come easy, I always contend it's either not worth it, (laughs) you know, because it's too easy, or it's going to be easily replaced, you know. And and when we stepped into this, you know, thankfully, I had a great team because it was hard. You know, leading up to it, this was 2009. If you remember back in the market crash of 2009, and by the way, here locally, Darden had just sold Smoky Bones, saying that you couldn't grow a barbecue business, okay, from multiple locations. So we could go into this little location, and man, I'll tell you what, everybody told us we were going to fail. I mean, as we're building this, and I'm I'm naive, and I'm thinking, you know, how, you know, we're going to build a nice little commissary, we're going to run a ministry, we're going to run a business. And I tell you, it was supposed to supposed to take three and a half months to build out. Supposed to the quote that I had was one hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars. Okay, which I look back and I, I I'm so foolish. <laughs> I don't, don't even believe that. Six months into the project, over half a million dollars of our family capital put in. My contractor works out, walks off the job. The whole market collapses, and everybody's telling us, you know, barbecue. It's regional flavors. You, you know, we told them we're going to lead with brisket. And this is way before brisket was on the scene. You know, you're going to fail because of that. It was a terrible location. You're on the wrong side of the road. Darden just didn't do well with it. I mean, on and on and on. And you just, you, you can't listen to that. You know, it, once you set your mind to it, and, and, and I say that, once you've done your diligence, I'm a huge fan to any entrepreneurs out there, you know, invest a little and learn a lot first. That is great advice, by the way. Before you step into it and you know put the family farm on the line, darn well do your diligence and test it because everybody's got a great idea, and you can convince yourself it's the best idea in the world. <laughs> you know, but once you go try to sell it to somebody and get money from them, then you'll find out real quick how good of an idea it is. Well, that tells me that prior to you starting that process. I'm thinking you're in your garage and you're experimenting with a ton of different recipes. I mean, anybody that's been to a Four River Steak Smokehouse now, it's a, it's a big menu and, and there's you got a lot of side uh, options there. So I'm sure you had done a little recon in the laboratory before you started that process. I started cooking. God bless my wife. When I was in healthcare, I would travel all over the country. And uh, cooking's always been my passion, like I said. And, and she would tape for me back then. On, I forgot what it was called, DBR or something like that on the cable stations. She would tape for me the, uh, the Paula Dean show and Emerald. And uh, then Bobby Flay came on the scene. Those were my teachers. And I would come home on Friday, and it was part of my... You know, just, you know, just relaxing. I would watch those shows and man, I would take copious notes and then I would spend that weekend cooking. And it wasn't always barbecue. You know, the barbecue was my travels around the country because I just, I married a Texan. You know, I got insulted. I insulted them because I'm Florida and I didn't know what brisket was, you know, when I met the family and they gave me heck. And I, I, I told them I was going to learn how to cook it better than any of them, which was idiotic because I didn't have a smoker <laughs> at the time. So as I was traveling around the country, God bless my assistant at the time, she couldn't schedule my flight back. 
until I hit one or two barbecue places in every city. And what I was doing, I was looking for best in class. I was trying to learn how to smoke brisket because it literally did take me 18 years to get that dang piece of meat down. But I was looking for best in class in each product group. And I had all these spreadsheets I was keeping of, you know, if I change the smoke or the temperature or the, the rub or the meat, any of that, you know, I had it all logged over time. And if you look at our rest, our menu today, you said it's a wide menu. Everything that's on there comes from a different region, which was part of the strategy of debunking the regionalization of barbecue. Our brisket comes from, actually from more from Oklahoma. <laughs> Don't say that too loud. But it's Oklahoma, Texas style mixed. Burn ends come from Birmingham, from Birmingham, Alabama, from Arthur Bryant's. Um, my ribs come from Mike up in North Carolina. My pulled pork, I learned that in, uh, in Alabama. You know, each one of those tri-tip came from California. You know, the hard part, consequently, was the sauce. Because I could, I could regionalize the flavor profile and the cooking style for the, the proteins, but the sauce has to go over all of them. And that dang sauce, you know, I'm not a chef. I'm not trained. You know, and there's a difference between learning how to cook a steak right and learning how to make a sauce. And uh, my poor wife, she, she said we, we had four years of bad sauce. <laughs> <laughs> in the house and you know how it came about i'm looking i, I literally had folders of barbecue sauce bar and i kept making it and all i was doing was duplicating other flavors that were there and the whole strategy if i'm going to take this dream at the time okay across state lines i've got to have a, a vehicle that doesn't restrict me you know, just from one flavor. And um, so I got so frustrated one day, I literally, I threw away my file and I was watching Paula Dean, a lot of Paula Dean at the time. And uh, so I said, you know, what's going to go in here? You know, ketchup, mustard, a lot of butter. Okay. A lot of honey. Okay. And then I looked in the cabinet and I'm looking at the little spices up there. And I turned one around that I'd never used before, never even heard of before. And it said good on uh, meat, chicken, and uh, pork. I'm like, Okay, <laughs> that's barbecue. So I put that in it, and that became our secret ingredient. And finally, the sauce came together. Tossing away a dossier of, of years of work. Say, why dossier yeah. of years of work? But you know what? Sometimes you just have to trust your gut, you know? You, know, you got to put your name on it. You, know, you got to put your signature on it. Now, all of that work in the dossier led me to that point. So you never discount that. The work of the people before you, you should always appreciate it, good or bad. Because you know, it helps you get to where you need to be. I love that lesson. And, and so th thinking about lessons, so you start the business. You and Monica are in the trenches, right? Maybe the first, gosh, two to four years. Again, for, for someone that's running the business or thinking about it, any lessons learned that are worth mentioning today? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you step into something like that, um, especially after coming off of a desk job of running a big business with all the resources you can ever imagine. It was an eye-opener. You know, it was one, it's a physical job, you know, and, and uh, you've got to be willing, especially if it's something that you're going to build and put your name on and put your life and your family behind. I mean, you got to make, you got to be willing to make it, you know, your all. I tell you what, you know, that it was really the first year because we stepped into it, not knowing much. There's only 12 of us when we opened the store. I was a carver. Monica was down at the cash register and we had people running around and the business just blew up. One for the audience, because I remember that that spot well. It was, it was across the street from, was it Cloney Church? It mm. was a takeout window. Is that right? No. 
you, you, you actually came in. The, t- the takeout window I built a year afterward Okay. because the takeout orders were slowing the line down so much. So you walk in, you order, you order. and there's a little seating area in the back. Keyboard well, little. Oh, God. When we opened, Scott, we didn't even have that. There were 11 park- it was, you know, We built that thing to be a commissary to run the ministry out of. And I put the front line in. And I said, you know, just in case anybody likes our food and they might want to come in and buy it. We weren't anticipating what happened. We, matter of fact, when we opened, we had uh, you know this little glass thing you know, that separates food. I put a little those little bells like in hotels. You know? <laughs> I said I figured we'd be in the back, you know, cooking stuff for the next fundraiser, and we wouldn't know if somebody came in. And Lord, I mean, we had twelve employees. You know, two of them were us. We weren't prepared for what walked in, and and that's what you know. You, you talk about that first year, the compounding issues were all caused by the, you know, the amount of business that came in. So they were good issues, but you know, we weren't even permitted as a restaurant. We were permitted as a commissary to run the ministry out of. We didn't have bathrooms. We didn't have any of that stuff. You know, so that first year, every dollar, I mean, quite honestly, that first year, you know, the first few months, okay, your, my objective was, you know, keep payroll and to pay bills and we've never missed a bill and we've never you know defaulted we never and that's important to me and you know just it wasn't about at that point how much money we're going to make or you know heck monica and i didn't take uh, an income for the first year and a half because every dollar we were bringing in you know we had to build restaurant or build bathrooms we had to build keep adding on adding on and finally i remember there was a day probably about a year and a half into it where I could actually, you know, give myself an, a salary. I mean, minor, but it, it was, it was wow. You know, you know, finally we don't have to hold our breath and wonder, okay, how are we going to do it next week? Was that the time, it's funny, I was going to ask you this question. When did you and Monica look at each other at the kitchen counter at home and say, I think we made it? <laughs> Does that ever actually ever happen? Yeah, uh, no, of course it has. Of course it has. You know, and it's, it's you got to be careful about that, you know, because it's, I'd hate to get to the point where, I say that we're, we're completely satisfied and done because we're building, you know, and, and not just building, you know, in the industry that we're in, you know, it's my job now as a CEO, I have to constantly keep the team out of complacency and success breeds complacency. If there's one of the biggest pitfalls and dangers of any organization, it is getting too comfortable with where they are today. You think about it, you started, your, your success was likely predicated by innovative thinking, okay? By doing things that were different, which advanced you past the current marketplace. When you got there, it doesn't mean that you stop, because guess what? The rest of the marketplace and people you don't even know about, they're innovative thinking based on what you've already established. And the moment that you stop in a marketplace that's continuing as fast as we are, not just restaurants, but just in the, in, in the world today, you start to go backwards. And you don't even recognize it because you're still making sales, you're still making earnings, then all of a sudden it sneaks up on you and, and smacks you. So, you know, I, I want to be careful about that, that day that we made it. You know, we, we got to a place where, like I mentioned, you know, work became reasonable. You know, Monica wasn't quitting on me, you know, <laughs> every week like she was before. And we were able, quite honestly, to increase our mission work. And um, there was a there was a time when, like I said, every penny was going back to to pay for the business. And finally, we got to a point where Winter Park High School calls and wants a, a football ad. I actually had money I could say yes. Yeah, 
you know. Well, you go from there to present day, and for anybody in our audience that doesn't know this, I mean, big multi-location across the state of Florida, I mean, 22 locations, 13, you know, smokehouses, it's a whole different operation now. But is it fair to say, John, that the, you know, the core tenants of run that business are still in play? Is that yeah, fair to say? Yeah. What is that? that we tell the team that, you know, your, your processes and how you do things have to continuously evolve and change, but your principles and your core values should always stay intact. You know, it's like, it's like an ocean. The waves above it are always going to be rough sometimes. Sometimes they're calm, sometimes they're rough. But 20 feet, 30 feet down, it's that calm stillness, okay, that, that stays the same regardless of what the market or the circumstances are. And be it the business principles or, quite honestly, your, your own continents, how you are and how you treat challenges, that stays the same. I love that advice. Um, I want to I ask you a little bit about some of the philanthropic stuff you're doing. But before I do, one, one more question, John, as you look back, if you could tell your 30-year-old self something, whatever that might be relative to the journey you're on and you're still on, what might you say to yourself back then? You know, um, and it's, sometimes it's hard for, for I just going to say aggressive, but really motivated leaders. But one of the most valuable things you can do is learn from other people's experience. You know, find a mentor. And quite honestly, find multiple mentors. And this is not a personal mentor who's going to challenge you and how you're thinking and what you But it's business. You know, the, the, the reason that we became who we are today is because when, when we were in building this thing and it was all falling apart and the market was going down, a gentleman came and stood by my side. And this gentleman named Dan Cathy at Chick-fil-A, out of the blue. And he gave me some of the most valuable and important things that I look back in a career and in life. You know, he didn't give me money. He didn't give me equipment. He didn't give me staff. He lent his time to me. And he gave me his advice. And he shared with me the learning lessons that he saw and learned growing up in the business. And I always tell people, you know, especially when they say, you know, how big of a difference can we really make in this world? And so, you know, one of the greatest assets and gifts that you, greatest assets that you have and greatest gifts that you can give somebody else is your time. And when you take a moment and you, you come and you share your experiences or you sit down with somebody who's got that young heart and dream, and just share with them some of the lessons you've learned along the way. You never know what the implications of that one little drop you throw into the pond are. Those ripples are going to hit other people. And you know what? You know, maybe they've, you've inspired them to help other people as well. Wonderful advice for business owners and, and anybody, actually. Take, take, as we kind of close out here, John, maybe a little bit about you guys are doing some really incredible community stuff out at the farm. Maybe for those of our listeners that might not be familiar with what's happening at the farm around sustainability and hunger. If you could talk about that a little bit, I'd appreciate it. No, absolutely. Give me two hours. I'll really tell you all about what's happening, not just in our community, but around the country. But, you know, it it all stems from the very start of who we are, and it's that barbecue ministry has has been tagged and termed. But it's really, it's, it's the greatest expression so far that we've had of all of our philanthropic work. And we still work in all the different communities that we're, we're in, and that's who we are. You know, that's, that's the base of our business, and that's how we started, and, and it will continue. But as, as our blessings increased, so did our responsibility 
to do more with it and make a greater impact and our ability to do so. So years ago, Monica and I prayed about where can we make the biggest impact in our own local community? Because I'm, I'm all about you, you, you help the community that you live in. Okay, and you set an example there. You don't have to change the world. You can change the community for. And you're definitely not going to change the world if you can't change your own community and make the improvements there. And we looked in, and, and specifically in the school system, and we started seeing some stats that were really concerning to us. You know, one of those stats was something I wasn't even aware of, but right here in our own backyard, there in, in, in OCPS, our public school system, one out of every five students lives in food insecurity. And when I learned that, I was naive enough to ask, what does that mean? What's food insecurity? And Barbara Jenkins, at the time, she looks at me, she says, John, she says, that's 20% of our kids who the only food that they typically will eat in the day is when they're here on campus. And I said, well, what about when they go home? What about dinner? She says, those 20% of kids don't have dinner. And I started thinking, what about the weekend? She says, they don't have food. They don't have access to food. And so that, that moved my heart, and it moved Monica's heart. And we started diving in, okay? Now, that's the problem. Systemic hunger in a community, there are so many contributing factors behind it, and then there's so many resulting implications that come out of it that are all harmful and negative to, to all of us. Even the business people that are have plenty of food in their refrigerator, you're impacted by the state and the health of the community that we live in. And we started going after hunger at first. And you remember Dave Krepko? He used to be the CEO of uh, Second Harvest. Great, great guy, great you know motivator and, and example in the marketplace. He said something to me years ago that changed our trajectory that ultimately led to the farm. He said, John, he says, you can't solve hunger by giving out food. And I said, what do you mean by that, Dave? Because they're, they're a food bank. He said, you know, we are giving out more food today than we ever have in our history. But yet missed meals and hunger is the highest it's ever been in Orange County. And it told me now that that's, that piece is necessary. You have to have food banks. And you've got in the value that they bring to uh, Orlando and the community is just tremendous. But that doesn't solve the problem. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a solver. You know, I don't want to just put a patch on it. That was the problem. You get to the systemic issues behind it, you know, it's food source, it's access, you know, our, our produce in the United States that we eat today, you know, even here in Florida, has on average traveled 1,782 miles to get to us. And over 52% of the fruit and vegetables that we eat in this country are brought in from a different country. Meanwhile, in the state of Florida alone, okay, and we're not, we're not the only state, by the way, that's like this. I just mentioned all that, all the meals that were missing, how much food we bring in from South America, from Canada, from all these other places. In Florida alone, there's nearly 1 billion pounds of produce that goes to waste in the fields that never comes off. There is more food available and thrown away today, okay, in the marketplace and in the fields and in the farms than it could feed every hungry person in the entire state right now. That's a mind-boggling statistic. Huh. You get me started. You yeah. rev me up on this. Yeah. I'm just starting. So we said, if you're going to change a community and you're going to make a change, it all starts with education, access, and inspiration. So the farm that we're building, it's a bit of a misnomer. It's actually a farm campus. And the campus is being built right here in the center of Orlando on uh, John Young Parkway, just north of Colonial, um, which is a blessing because it's right in the middle of the city. 
And it's a 40-acre facility that Dr. Phillips and the city of Orlando blessed us with. And we're building on it everything from classrooms, where students will learn about sustainable farming and regenerative agriculture, to uh, careers in the, in the agriculture space, to an event center that we can host meetings and bring farmers in and be able to teach them about it, to moms and dads. You know, we, we send home food, food today through our program, Feed the Need. We've served over 2 million meals now. You know, I can send broccoli or I can send asparagus home to somebody, a little boy or a little girl. But if their parents don't know how to cook it, it's going to go in the trash can. So it's, you know, it's access plus education. It's teaching moms and dads how to cook those healthy meals. And at the heart of it, okay, we cannot have a healthy uh, life for ourselves, a healthy business, a healthy family, if we're in an unhealthy community. So as we increase the health of the overall community, which means you start with the very lowest people and you raise them up, you know, our community benefits from that. So that's a, you know, way too short of a synopsis of what we're building, but that's our goal. That is incredible community work. And, I, and on behalf of, of the bank and our partners, I want to thank you for that. And I know there's, you've got some very important partners alongside you as well. I know it's a team effort, so we're super grateful for that. And as, as we close here, I would tell our audience, well, first, I want to thank you, John, for joining us today uh, on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And we're grateful for that work again. And then I, I would tell anybody listening, first of all, treat yourself with some barbecue at Four Rivers. It's just that good. And then also, I, I would encourage all of you to go online. John, we can we can find, we can learn about what's going on in the packing district at the campus in the farm online. Is that right? www.fourrootsfarm.org. And that's four with a number four. Right. I, again, I would encourage you all to, to take a few minutes and see what John and his team are doing in this community. It's really important uh, in philanthropic work. I want to thank our guests and John, and I want to thank all of our listeners to Regions Business Radio Orlando, presented by Regions Bank, member FDIC, an equal housing lender. You can enjoy our episodes anytime by visiting businessradiox.com and selecting the Orlando studio and then click on Regions Business Radio. This program is also available on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the program so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And again, I'm Scott Wall, and you've been listening to Regions Business Radio Orlando on Business Radio X. Business Radio X.